Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Back today with Joshua Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. Good morning. Good late morning, Josh. Good late morning to you. After morning. Well, as the results from the national election have become a little more settled, I mean, as we record this on Thursday afternoon, I think there's still a handful of House races out at the national level, but the expectation is that the Republicans uh, will take over the House. Uh, Democrats have already kind of locked down the, the Senate, even with the runoff coming. I thought what we could do today is kind of engage, at least as a point of departure, one of the... Um, he said that, yes, we are promising a digressive podcast in advance, if you didn't read that leading indicator. Ah. Um, you know, uh, both of us gotten calls and, you know, there's stuff out there, you know, reading like looking at kind of a contrast between the national election results and the environment and Texas. Now, say from the very beginning, it's a little bit of a straw man. It's a lot of, I mean, this but, is- But we are hearing this, right? Like, why is it looking like this nationally, but Texas seems so different? Yeah. And I mean, just real quick, I mean, there's sort of like a, a meta answer, which is that, you know, more than one thing can be true at the same time. Yeah. And in general, I think one of the difficult things, especially after an election, is, and this is not, I think people, all kinds of people do this for all kinds of different reasons, but there's a tendency to want to draw a straight line between one point and an outcome. Yeah. And say, well, this is what it was, or this wasn't it or whatever. And the reality of course, is like, you know, life is complicated. A lot of factors can be going on at the same time. And then what that means is that sometimes you can make these observations that can be contradictory to each other, yet they can still both be true depending on what it is you're actually looking at here. And I think that's sort of, you know, this kind of yeah. weird space, you know, in sort of the kind of, you know, national environment discussion, what happened there, and then squaring that away with Texas. You know, on its surface, there's like, there's definitely some some conflicts. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah, I mean, I think specifically what we're hearing is, you know, it, it, the other piece of this is how much expectations of, you know, varying, you know, groundedness, you know, <laughs> right. actually helped, you know, front load this. But I mean, I, you know, the bottom line here, I think, is that, you know, that the, the big narrative nationally has been we are anticipating a red wave nationally. It didn't happen. Right. And yet in Texas, Republicans won everywhere. And I think that's the setup for, you know, right. Republican hegemony held pretty. So let's let's unpack that a little bit. So I mean like you know look there are some contrasts here and you know I mean by putting these out there you know this is not an endorsement of these it's kind of just the setup mm -hmm. right but you know so people looked at the close partisan division nationally which you know in a sense meant no red wave right. in this among other things uh versus just the steady GOP dominance in Texas Another aspect of this, you know, is kind of the abortion seems to motivate and mobilize Democrats in the country or in parts of the country. We're right. already back, you know, already qualifying and seemingly did not to that extent in Texas. Now, that's a, a little bit of an open question. You know, another would be, you know, the, the idea that people are looking at, you know, pretty high turnout in many parts of the country versus, you know, we were talking about this earlier and we and we kind of dug this out last week. 
not low turnout in Texas, but moderate turnout, comparatively moderate turnout right. where, in Texas. Where Texas usually ends up. And yeah, and where Texas usually ends up relative to other to other states. So, you know, I mean, I, I guess the, the burr under the saddle here is for today is, you know, this seems a little bit myopic. Yeah. Right? I mean- and I, and I think part of this is simply that, the, you know, uh, in addition to your point about people want to sort of make things monocausal in the most kind of simple terms, mm-hmm. um, and it's hard to get out of those narratives. And, I you know, I, I think in terms of media discussions, it's an easy setup. It's a little bit of a straw man, kind of what we're doing to some degree, I guess. But, but we're being honest about it. But at least we're, yeah, at least we're just using, yeah, we're being honest that we're using it as a setup. You know, in some ways, the objects of comparison, to my mind, are just wrong, yeah. right, in that. You know, people are going, hey, look, it's a closely divided chambers of Congress or in Congress. And, you know, we've got these high turnout competitive states. How come Texas doesn't look like that? Or how come only some districts look like that? But all of that is very different than talking about Texas. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I think it's it's the two things, right? It's what you said and it's the other thing you said, which and it's also this idea of sometimes stated often implicit expectations. And, and just as a side, you know, part of it is if there was an expectation of, of a red wave that didn't materialize, that doesn't mean that there was a blue wave either, right? And that's right. the first thing is that, you know, to the extent that you, you know, I think if you were in Texas and you were sort of trying to deal with on the one hand, you know, especially if you were a Democrat in Texas, I would say in particular, trying to deal with on the one hand, you know, national coverage over the last few days that has left Democrats feeling pretty okay about themselves. But then looking at the same thing, yeah, but Beto lost by 11 points. Yeah. You know, part of it is saying, well, wait, how does this square? How did the same, you know, I mean, we're, we're common, you know, we say this all the time and I think it's valid here and it still is valid here. You know, Texas is part of the U.S. Right. Right. And so ultimately, but that would lead, should I think lead a smart listener to say, well, yeah, but if Texas is part of the U.S., why didn't we see in Texas what we saw elsewhere? And I would say we did see in Texas what we saw everywhere right. else, right? Which is we saw, and this is actually true if you look back at the 2020 election, people pointed out in 2020, Joe Biden wins the election, usually the president's sure. party. Gets you know big majorities usually on the president's coattails, and people point out, well, that didn't really happen this election. Really, we kind of yeah. came out of it with a pretty similarly divided, clo- you know, Congress, a pretty closely divided political system, and ultimately, twenty twenty two looked a lot like that, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, Democrats can be happy that they didn't get slaughtered everywhere, but really, what we saw was, you know, I would say instead of con- continuity, we ever talk about this, like change versus continuity is the way we talk about it a lot, but I mean, really, we saw less so than continuity, but a preference for the status quo versus the alternative. And what that means is that in states that tended to be democratic states or states that were trending democratic, if they were democratic incumbents, they seem to do okay. If there were Republican incumbents in states that are Republican or trending in the Republican direction, they seem to do pretty okay. And Texas is no different than that, right? I mean, it's in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, I, you know, there, there was kind of a steady state at work here. And you know, and I think the other thing we also have to remember is that there's kind of a, you know, there's a problem of kind of totalizing the election returns at the yeah. national level, particularly in a midterm election. You know, in fact, there are states, other states that looked a bit like Texas to, you know, they have yeah. different trajectories. But I mean, it was a very big Republican night uh, across the board in Florida. Right. Very, very big Republican night across the board in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are not trivial examples. Those are actually pretty good comparative cases right. in their own ways. Now, I think both got more media attention because there has been change going on in those states. Both had been seen as swing states. Yeah. And as you know, there had been a lot of competition. I mean, I you know, I used to joke in giving talks when people would say, 
do you think the future of Texas is gonna is gonna look like California because it's inevitably gonna turn blue and the demographics and all that that we beat to death in here, you know? And I had a punchline that would say, "Look, I don't, you know, I don't think that Texas is gonna look like California. I think it's gonna look more like Florida." Yeah. Now that is, I can't use that joke anymore now that Florida has turned, but it does sort of un- underline the point that, you know, in both of these states, I mean, and I think we mentioned this last week. You know, we saw. Uh, you know, Governor DeSantis, you know, win Miami-Dade. Now, mm-hmm. I think people, the interpretation of that is a whole other issue about gets us into like, you know, Latinos and, and what's been going on in Florida. But nonetheless, there are big examples of, you know, the fact that it's a closely divided country. And, you know, a lot of what we saw was, you know, was not earth-shakingly, you know, new. Right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, the other thing is, I mean, you can't, I mean, this is sort of an aside, but you can't really discount the, I mean... You can't really discount the effect that redistricting also played on this. You know, I think there was an idea going right. into the redistricting process, both in Texas and elsewhere, that, you know, this would lead to sort of wild, you know, deviations, you know, in terms of the right. outcomes, you know, off of whatever we say, like, you know, the, off of the margins of victories in the state as opposed to, you know, tiny ones. And when people came back and started looking at this, they said, well, actually, this probably is going to, you know, I, mean, I think a lot of people say this actually probably helps Democrats a little bit more than I think people generally tended to anticipate the redistricting process. And that's the thing is that what you ended up finding was in a lot of states, the ultimate consequence of redistricting was to solidify the position of incumbents in most places. And so it's not surprising to see an election, which incumbents do incredibly well. I think I th- saw by last count, you know, the reelection rate for incumbent representatives to Congress so far. Uh, yeah. With you know again with races still outstanding, so the denominator is still not you know still bigger, right? It still isn't complete right. yet. It was like ninety seven and a half percent. It's like you know which again is like it's that high, right? And so really you know you can't have a ton of change you know under that kind of set of conditions, right? Right. And 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 you know and I and I think again that yeah Texas looks that way. It's very similar to you know to other places where we see that dynamic, and I you know. It really does raise the the point of, you know, and we had talked about it in different ways going into the election, but as we digest what just happened, one of the things that has really occurred to me is that the approach the majority took to redistricting in Texas in the legislature in particular this time, in terms of, you know, the largely protecting incumbents of both parties. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Democrats fared worse than Republicans, et cetera. Yeah. It not only stabilized the pattern in the way that you would expect to partisan advantage. You know, it, 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 we'd have to look at this, and this may or may not be empirically demonstrable, but I suspect that it also contributed to the lack of the perception of competitiveness that hurt the overall mobilization effort for Democrats. I agree with that. And, and again, I, I mean, one, we have to look at the data to, to be more certain about a statement like that. But on the other side of it, you know, I, I got to a question from a reporter about turnout in Williamson County right. as an interesting example. And I went and they were saying, you know, turnout in Williamson County was very high. It was above the statewide average. I think it was about 10 points higher than the average statewide, which is yeah. pretty big. Yeah, I saw that. And, you know, she was sort of asking why. And I went back to look at it. And there's a couple of things. One, Williamson County is a high turnout county. I mean, just setting yeah. aside, they're always above the statewide average. And it's actually been increasing. Ethnic composition, level of education, competitiveness. And that's exactly competitiveness right. competitiveness asterisk. And that's the <laughs> thing that I was focusing on was to say, look, you know, what do we know about Williamson County? Well, one, we know that, you know, up in, up in Round Rock, they were having a 
big school board races, which were drawing a lot of people into that right. process. We also know they had one of the few open uh, and competitive state house seats in 52, Tallarico's old seat that was redrawn. Right, which they right? a Republican seat and was competitive, and Tallarico moved into another seat. Right. Yeah. And then people are also pointing out, they're saying, oh, and look, Abbott won this county you know, just barely that Biden and O'Rourke had won in the previous election. Now, one thing I'd like to point out is he barely won it. Biden barely won it. O'Rourke barely won it. Abbott won it by a bunch more, actually, than he did in mm -hmm. 2018. And he won it by a lot more than that uh, in 2014. But this is the point. This is a prototypical county where both parties are competing heavily for voters. Right. It's highly populated. Williamson County is one of the fastest growing counties in the country. Right. And so what you're seeing is you're seeing a place where there is competition. Right. There's competition in the state house. There's competition in the school boards. And you've got the two statewide candidates likely. I mean, I think when you go back and look, probably spending a good amount of money and mobilization efforts to get the large number of voters who live right. in these areas turned but out. In conjunction with that, I mean, to the, you know, to go to the point I was making is kind of like, you know, so what you're seeing is an example of there is sort of bottom up. Right. You know, sort of impetus that's for turnout. Yeah, and the thing is, what I was going to say is, you know, and really, if you're going to say, well, how many other sort of counties in the state would really match, you know, kind of the characteristics you're talking about, I say, you know, I could probably count it on two hands or less, right, out of 254 counties. Well, and as we you know, and as we said going in, since we were looking at, you know, we were emphasizing the school board races, but also the legislative seats in that area. You know, you got to really stretch to say that there were ten leg competitive legislative races. Yeah. In Absolute. both chambers, Absolutely, right? yeah. And so, you know, I mean, the point I was, you know, sort of had been kind of kicking around was how much that took a lot of, you know, so so the Republican, re, you know, the redistricting maps Republicans do helped them in two different ways. Obviously, it helped them in the obvious ways right. that maps help you, but it also helped them in diffusing competition mm -hmm. down ballot. Well, you know, we'll have to look at that a little bit more, I think. And, yeah, well, you, you know, know, look at some of the ballot roll-off, you know, compare ballot roll-off in some of those races, well, something I mean, I, like that. And I'm totally shooting from the hips here, so I may regret yeah. this. But I'll just say, you know, I mean, I've got I got some questions in the aftermath. I never, I didn't end up answering for very, uh, I mean, I don't know why. I don't remember. I think, I, I think it was right. too late in the day or something, and then I was after the deadline. But there were some questions floating around about like, well, you know, what about the votes that may not get counted in Harris County? Is like, yeah. you know, would that make a big difference? Now, the first thing to say is no. Just hard stop, no. The gap is so big, it's not going to make right. a difference. But if you're thinking about, you know, if I'm thinking about the overall impact of various factors and Texas has turned out this election right. and trying to a lot amount it, I would, you know, again, or even trying to rank order the importance of them in terms of, you know, ex yeah. explanation, you know, the institutional sort of midterm stuff, you know, non-presidential yeah. election year, all that business is probably at the top. I would probably put you know, the lack of competition in, you know, probably exacerbated by redistricting above voting rules. And I, that might be a little controversial. Yeah. But when I think about, you know, again, the, the marginal impacts that voting rules really generally tend to have on people versus, you know, amongst those people who are really in the mix as potential voters, whether or not there's something to vote yeah. for of consequence, that, that to me is going to be a much bigger impact. No, I think that's, you know, that's kind of where I'm headed. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think that's right. Um, or at least potentially, right? We, you know, we need to look at that a little more closely. I think. Right, and, I agree. And I, you know, there's probably there might be a little bit of an asterisk in those Harris County votes, depending on some of the, where those votes are and where you know some so, of those local races. Well, you know, you mentioned something. So I mean, the thing but, about the Harris County votes is, yeah, I mean, they're more likely to have an impact because they're more likely to be lopsidedly Democratic. Um, but then you brought up something else too, which was you know you're talking about the role that abortion played in the in yeah. election in some parts of the state and and the the role that it seemingly did not play in Texas. And I mean, I think this is a little bit of a repetition, but I mean, I think that's, again, 
I think that's an oversimplification in the sense yeah. that if your if your thought was abortion is going to mean Democrats are going to win in Texas, then yes, right. your expectation is missed. But the thing is, is and, you know, this is just important to recognize is, and I think you know this is something that probably was sort of it's like one of those things like a lot of things it becomes a clear you know once in, it, yeah, in once, hindsight like everything once thing actually happens yeah but yeah but I mean this is well, this is what we didn't see we did not see large uh, subsets of certain voters switching party allegiances due to abortion due to abortion we did not see significant shifts in the composition of the electorate that would be you know reflective of let's say voters voting at vastly different rates or significantly different rates from prior elections due to abortion. Yeah. And I think the issue here is just, you know, and it's real simple, which is, you know, if you take if you think about voters who are either very pro-life or very pro-choice, their vote was pretty much guaranteed. I mean, those voters have, you know, uh, you know, if their main issue is abortion and either abortion access or prohibition, they have two parties and they know who right. to vote for. And they vote for those parties. And, and and if it's not your main issue, then it was probably overwhelmed by partisanship or other issues. Right, and, and, and if partis, par, partisanship and in, if in it, your voting habits. And if it was your main issue and you weren't a partisan voter, let's say you're someone who's not really heavily, you know, integrated, engaged in the system, but abortion brought you out. Well, what I would say is that, regardless of what the split is, it's not going to be nine to one pro-choice Democrats, you know, pro-choice right. now Democrats turning out. It's going to be something like. Probably on this state, maybe six to four, right? Which means yeah. that, you know, and, and it's important to say like out of 10, right? Because part of it is like, yeah, so for maybe every 10 voters you add, maybe the Democratic gain two. And really when you say, well, yeah, but wouldn't that be a lot? And it's like, but remember what we just said before, we're talking about a real marginal number of people we're probably adding to the electorate because of the abortion issue. Right. And so it's not that it, it fizzled. It's just that I think more than anything, it probably reinforced the partisan dynamics that we already see here. And yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I mean, I, and we did talk about this a little bit beforehand. People were kind of overestimating what, you know, what the ceiling was on, you know, how many people, how many people were going to vote based on the, you know, the salience of this well, on, on both sides. Yeah, and I think, and I honestly think that the the interpretation of the the really mostly exit polling in other states and in other Democratic leaning states tends to overinterpret that data, not because we don't think that data is super reliable. That's a separate discussion, right. which we always kind of put a pin in. But because, you know, if you think about it, what were Democrats talking about since the summer? They've been talking about abortion. And when you ask in a Democratic state where a majority of the voters are Democrat, what their main issue is going to be or is, it's not surprising to find that it's the issue that Democrats were talking the most about, were right. emphasizing the most. But that doesn't mean that abortion won Pennsylvania for Democrats, right? right? And that's the thing. Again, it gets very easy to sort of say, you know, again, draw that straight line. And you want to say, well, there's a straight line between the abortion decision and Democratic turnout and Democratic success in Pennsylvania. And you could say, well, maybe, but also, I mean, the flip side is like, you know, how much did this add to what we would expect as a baseline turnout level? And you'd say it's probably a little bit. It probably helped. Yeah. But then part of the problem becomes, you know, it's not that it's a problem making that interpretation, but it's then when you start saying, well, why didn't this thing happen in Texas? Like, I'm not sure it happened in Pennsylvania. Like, let's right. just, you know, let's, and if it did, it's, it's, a, it was a marginal effect. And so, you know, to the extent it did or did not happen in Texas, we're talking about a fraction of a marginal effect happening here that may or may not have happened somewhere else. And so I think that's where these things start to get pretty confused. Right. Pretty I mean, quickly. The, yeah, the entanglement of those agenda items and just the sheer force of partisanship right now. Pretty hard to disentangle. Yeah, I mean, almost. Right. I would say almost Probably. impossible. You know, so 
So I think that, you know, as we look at these things and, you know, what's similar, what's different, you know, it, it, as we were saying at the beginning, it's really, I think, kind of more useful to think about, particularly as we move past the election, which hopefully we will be doing soon. Please. You know, it's kind of more useful to think about how Texas fits into the overall constellation of national politics, which I think is reflected in all these things we're saying about what's constitutive, you know, what the limits to the contrast and and the limits to just how you conceptualize, you know, thinking about Texas on one hand and the country on the other. You know, I think as this all settles and as we just look at what's happened just in the week since the election, you know, my expectation is that the state will continue to provide a kind of ballast for the the national Republican Party as we turn immediately, not (laughs) surprisingly, but even more immediately than usual, I think, given the Trump announcement yesterday. Um, You know, for the national Republican Party, both in presidential politics and in Congress, what I mean by that is... You know, Texas is still going to be a key piece of the Electoral College strategy mm-hmm. of whoever runs for, for president. It's still likely to be a pretty reliable piece. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever we see, as we've talked about in the the decreasing margins in presidential races, you know, and in Congress. I think that just leads us back to where we live most of the time, you know, which is, you know, within the Republican coalition, if you want to call it that, the fractious Republican coalition in the state, we're already seeing the internal factional battles playing out at the moment. And, you know, this is obviously happening nationally. You can't pick up. A, right. Yeah. You know, you can't open your inbox if you get the political newsletters without talking about, you know, the maneuvering in, in the U.S. House over McCarthy's leadership. Right. Uh, the, the brewing you know, I think challenge is too strong a word, but the complaining about Mitch McConnell, the fact that uh, Senator Scott is going to challenge him, uh, the two Texas senators are actually yeah. sort of maneuvering in that, and I think both are sort of support are both are supporting a delay in the vote for the for the next majority leader. Although, I wouldn't be surprised to see those two split. Eventually, get, gets, eventually, I think that's right. I mean, I think. But I mean, both of those are interesting questions. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, in terms of the corn and Cruz thing right now, you know, we're seeing the same kind of combination of you know factional, personal, ideological fights breaking out in, in nationally, but particularly in the state right now, and that we're then waiting to see how they play out in the legislation in the in the legislative session. Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable. You know, I mean, to to put it that, I mean, I can you didn't put it that way in front of me before we talked about this. And it is really remarkable to look at it and say, you know, you're seeing the same dynamics play out among Republicans, both at the national level where, you know, the 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 sort of seeming impetus for that is, you know, the underperformance. Yeah. Right. So on the one hand, you know, you've got these questions about, you know, Trump's role in the party and, you know, you've got Rick Scott, who everybody was, you know, very a lot of Republicans were very unhappy with during yeah. much of the campaign season. Now he's challenging McConnell and and it's interesting, you know, again, in the wake of, I mean, it's not surprising in the wake of sort of underperformance, especially more so losses, but underperformance to see sort of a certain amount of finger pointing going on. But yet in Texas, you're seeing almost the same thing, but there's not about the finger pointing, right? It's not about we underperformed or, you know, right. I mean, the same factional issues. And I wonder, I mean, I'm kind of almost asking Although this. There was a tiny bit of underperformance carping by some of the usual suspects, but go ahead. Well, yeah, no, I mean, well, exactly. But I mean, that, but that's also clearly also functional towards the argument more generally about, you know, changing in, in leadership and sort of agenda control at the state level. I guess what's interesting 
to me in all of this, in some ways, is the fact that I wonder how much of this is a reflection of kind of the ossification of the overall political system in some way. I mean, it's been, I mean, and again, it may be overdoing it because I think we see this in Texas every time. I mean, we're going to yeah. get it, but much of what we're seeing in the movement right now and the potential conflicts between especially Republicans within the caucus over who, where, you know, basically where power is going to lay right. in the legislature, you know, that happens every time. It's interesting to see it also taking place at the national level, but it also kind of raises to me this idea of, you know, if politics are as ossified as they are, then really this is where the battle takes place. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think that's why, you know, it's interesting, you know, that's why I'm eager to pivot to the legislature, right? Because mm-hmm. I think at, at least, you know, from the perspective of, of, what we're looking at in the next few months, in the next, you know, six months, if not a little bit longer than that is, you know, as you say, some of the, the, the litigation of the, of the same issues, but then, you know, the perpetual question of, and I, and I think we, this came up a little bit last week, how do the players interpret the elections with the overlay of, you know, how, how are some of the ongoing fights that we've now seen going on and, and contention and, and rivalries play out in a, in a slightly changed terrain, right? So, you know, the leadership will be the same. Right. For, you know, mo- we were, almost, almost certainly, right? I mean, the Speaker of the House, I mean, is... Yeah. I mean, yeah he's, I'm willing to say the leadership will be okay, the same. Just checking, making sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we can, you know, that's, you know, we can come back to that. I sp- well, I do want to come back to that. I mean, I think that, that fits in this discussion, right? Right. And, you know, so we'll, you know, barring, you know, something really, really, really surprising, right. you know, Dave Phelan will be the speaker again, mm-hmm. uh, despite this challenge from uh, uh, Tony Tinderholt, which I think we mentioned last week, it just happened. And, you know, the, the discussion of the agenda is strikingly familiar, mm-hmm. right? In terms of, you know, I mean, exhibit A this week, you know, uh, Governor Abbott didn't take him very long to double down again on Operation Lone Star and the border. You know, he sent letters this week to county judges and across the state and to DPS, the leaders of the DPS and the Texas National Guard, you know, essentially reminding them that Operation Lone Star was going to continue in, and that it was more urgent in the wake of a federal judge this week blocking the the implementation of article 42 expulsions and, 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 and memorializing right. the invasion rhetoric into right state, and it, you know, state well what was interesting to, is know. that yeah i mean i you know and i and i think there was some confusion out there because i think you know and i've just sorted this out fairly recently i mean people were circulating the proclamation from july right Right now, and and the letters invoked that proclamation. So though, so even though the headlines were Governor Abbott formally declares invasion, this is not yeah the kind of invocation of you of constitutional authority that a lot on the far right have been asking him to make. Even though he gets some of the credit for that. Well, I was going to say, I mean, and I remember talking to someone about this in July, and part of this was to say, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's not it's not what the people who want it. Who want it to be sort of the idea of like you know a, a right. real a real invasion? What that could potentially mean from a legal a ch- you know, yeah and a challenge to national authority. But it, and- but it also is a, again a, another reminder of, of Abbott's willingness to play ball with right. those people. Well, I mean, that, I think that. yeah, yeah, willingness is even you know probably you know yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah, the strategy of making sure that nobody. You know, nobody of any prominence is going to get to the right of him on right. this. I mean, and, you know, the through line, you know, is, is still pretty evident here from the polling we're always talking about here with immigration and border security. But also, you know, we were talking about the science of abortion in the exit polls 
immigration was pretty salient. <laughs> immigration and border security were still pretty salient to Republican voters uh, in the exit polls with all the caveats on the exit polls. So, you know, as we go into the session, you know, this factional, you know, the, the surface of this kind of factional contention, you know, is evident in the, you know, familiar leadership dynamics. I mean, you raise the question of whether I'm you know, anointing Dade Phelan in a way too too soon. And, you know, I'm perfectly willing to say, yes, Dade, Dade Phelan has not formally been elected speaker yet. But, I, you know, the challenge from the right, and, and several people have written about this, including credit where credit is due, Scott Braddock and Quorum Report. I mean, if you look back at what the, the challenges to the speaker were, you know, I mean, I've complained year after year yep. about people always making too much of them. Mm-hmm. You know, most of them have not made it to the floor. Yeah. To my mind, I mean, I think you have to read this not as a realistic intent on Tony Tinderholt's part or the part of any of his ideological fellow travelers that Tony Tinderholt will ever be speaker. It's more about raising the issue, you know, the issue of, you know, ideological conservative orientation and, you know, one or two particular issues. In this case, the issue of are there going to be Democratic chairs named by the speaker? It's kind of, you know, I think Dave Phelan has already committed to this. We talked about this last week. I mean, you know, the number of Democrats that you have chairing committees is a highly fungible thing that enables the speaker to, you know, maintain, you know, a a Democratic backstop against, you know, uh, uh, factionalism in his caucus. But while, you know, deciding where he is going to put Democratic chairs and for what reason and how many. Yeah. And, you know, that's pretty, to, to my mind, that's just pretty straightforward. I, I think it's the raising of the issue and the heat check that it invites among the right. And whether, you know, Tinderholt will make the mistake that Scott Turner did, you know, a few sessions back, force this to the floor and put people on the spot who are then blackballed is maybe a little bit of a strong term, but are at a disadvantage when it comes to committee assignments and advancing bills. Once the, you know, the session actually starts. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking. You know, you're sort of on a fine line there between sort of extracting some concessions from what was always going to be the leadership versus putting yourself and your allies on the outs for an entire session. Yeah. And and, and, most, so, people, and most people don't choose the latter. Right. I mean. and, and so then similarly, then, you know, you look at the, the Senate, you know, you've got, um, you know, Dan Patrick uh, elected by a much larger, you know, much wider margin than he was last time. Uh, very secure in the Senate. No surprises. I mean, they would have liked to have, you know, flipped the Lucio seat to to a literal Republican, shall we say? Um, and they did not just, you know, they they've not succeeded in doing that. There's probably going to be a recount in that race, but I don't think that's going to probably not going to change it. As we were saying again, as we were saying last week, you know. And so you've got Patrick there. You know, in this kind of situation with with Phelan, with the governor in this position, tra- you know, transmitting, you know, trying to trying to transmit an agenda that, again, very familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, setting the stage, though, for, you know, what is still, I think, a very undetermined sense of where the pride of place is going to be on the agenda in this session. There's a lot of talk right now of issues that are, broadly speaking, kind of developmental Republican issues. You know, top of the heap, property taxes, education, Chapter 313 incentives. Bubbling under here is also some discussion of infrastructure and, you know, this perpetual problem of, also perpetual problem of managing the, to the state's rapid growth. 
you know, on the other side, to over, you know, slightly oversimplify, you've got abortion, guns, LGBTQ issues. You know, how much continuity will there be from the agenda that was so successful in the very fractious, part, on partisan terms, uh, uh, 2021 session? And I think all of that, again, looks like a Texas variation on a national theme. Yeah. And then the truth is, I mean, you know, the more you talk about the the less I care about the national theme and the more I'm thinking more about these internal dynamics. And it does make you wonder, you know, if you think about watching this session multiple times and what we're starting with was, yeah, there's always a speaker challenger somewhere, whether formal or informal, somebody always crops up. And, and I understand, you know, it's just one of those things. There's so much drama to speculate on and usually almost none of it actually happens. Well, and again, we've talked about this and I, I can't remember if I talked about this last week or not. I know I've done this in class before, but you know, I mean, I think the underappreciated piece of this is the the change in the law a few years back that made it so that if you're going to be a speaker candidate, you don't have to register with the Secretary of State. Right. To my mind, that's a, on one hand, meant as a good transparency measure. It's got that. On the other hand, it's an invitation to, you know, display behavior. Yeah. Whether you think you're going to win or not. And, you know, I, so, you know, that's at work there, I think. And, um... So, I mean, that's interesting, right? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I think more broadly, you know, you kind of, I mean, if you think about the last session, I mean, one of the things, you know, we're coming off the presidential uh, election cycle, you know, I'm curious to see whether Abbott's hand is strengthened, you know, kind of coming after a cycle in which he just won by 11 points and spent a ton of money and how people interpret that in the process. You know, he's, sort of yeah. had, he's kind of had, I would say, mixed success in his ability to move his agenda through the legislature. You know, same thing for Patrick. I mean, Patrick's agenda, I think, is is getting you know, over time is getting more and more focused. I mean, if not focused on a, like a, a clear kind of unifying set, but in the sense that as he achieves more of the things that right. he wanted to set out to achieve, I think the list is getting a little bit more targeted right. and the amount of effort he's putting to the things he cares about, I think is going to be higher. You know, at the house, you know, it is, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't disagree that there's no reason to think until it's about to happen that Phelan is not going to be speaker, right? I mean, yeah. it'd be that kind of thing, but I'm curious to see what you know, what does he look like in his second session? I mean, there's certainly some management problems in the House last session yeah. that were problematic and, you know, gave the Democrats a lot of openings to, to to scuttle the process. You know, do they clean that up? What does that look like? And all those things are kind of in, yeah. intermixing in a way that's, you know, it's pretty interesting. But again, to your point, still within an overall environment that looks fairly familiar. Fairly yeah. familiar. Well, and I think the other thing you want to you don't want to add into that is you know with with the position of the speaker. You know that was a first term and a first term that you know arose out of a lot of chaos with the collapse of the bond and speakership. Right. And you know this is not you know this is not a speakership that had been strategized for a long time. Right. Right. And that and that that affected that. And I think you know. You know, the, the ill will between the speaker and the lieutenant governor right now, which is accentuating, you know, the traditional rivalry tension that exists at times between the House and the Senate. The operative question, you know, the, the main question here is like, how operative is a situation that has seemed to be, I think, w- without too much debate, that the speaker and the governor are closer than either of them is to the lieutenant governor, right? And the lieutenant governor is able to leverage, you know, his, you know, uh, uh, his control of the Senate. It doesn't seem that Patrick's control of the Senate is going to decrease. Um, You know, there could be a little bit of a lame duck factor theoretically in the abstract, 
but I don't see it, right? Not, not, and the, then not this session, I don't think. On the on the house on the side of the house and the governor, you know, feeling isn't a you know is is in a stronger position in the house, at least structurally. And again, there's the management strategy, the execution. We'll see how they execute in terms of leadership. But the other piece of that is that Phelan was very involved in the elections, and they put a lot of money into the elections and a lot of resources and, you know, exercised a leadership role in there that was a little bit similar to the leadership role that the governor's campaign played, to my mind, in 2020. Yeah. When there was a vacuum. Right. You know, really, it, you know, in the, in the House because of the unpleasantness. You know, I think that winds up helping Phelan, whether, he, you know, they, they're able, his team and his leadership team is able to, ma- to to manage that is another question. There will be a lot of new faces. A lot of those new faces, though, you know, will have some allegiance to the current speaker based on campaign relationships. And so I think, you know, watching, you know, the gravity of all of those actors has shifted subtly in different ways. But, you know, we're not going to see what that looks like probably until things really get going. You know, the, the bill filing, the early bill filing was not too telling. That all looked pretty familiar, too, in terms and is usually not a particularly good leading indicator anyway. But it does give you a sense of what, you know, certain people are interested in. And, you know, and look, it's not a surprise, but it is, you know, we were talking about having evidence earlier. Yeah. You know, if you look at the kind of bills that people like Representative Slayton filed, yeah, that's what I was thinking. things like this, you know, I mean, what is the that emphasis part, on, you know, further action on the LGBTQ front, um, you know, more ratcheting down of the electoral system, you know, in those kinds of, in addition to people's traditional, you know, business as usual bills, there's a little bit to be seen there. I don't think it's, you know, so I think the other thing, you know, the next big thing we're really kind of waiting for that we're going to have to wait for is a while, for a while and is few, will fuel a lot of the internal speculation is what the committee chair assignments look like in both chambers. But particularly since Phelan is a bigger question mark, particularly in the House. Yeah. And the thing that I was thinking you were going to say is probably a secondary would be like, so what are you going to do with that budget surplus? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that- It's a big, you know- You know, I mean, and that's, yeah, I, you know, that's going to be the substance, right? right? That's not a leading indicator. That's, no. that's going to be the thing, yeah. right? Or one of the things. So with that, uh, thanks to Josh for being here. Thanks to our excellent production team in the Dev Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Remember, you can find some of the data we referenced today, but lots of other data uh, <laughs> at the Texas Politics Project website. That's texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 